Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11, it's the story of um, David and Bathsheba this morning. Um, we've been looking at, uh, during this month, during this season of Advent, where uh, we're anticipating, looking forward to Christmas, to remembering the time when Jesus came, uh, when the Son of God came into the world in the person of Jesus, to uh, be both God and man, and to, uh, to be our Redeemer. Uh, we're looking at the, the women who appear in his genealogy in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 1, there's a long list of names. Um, you probably, if you ever just start reading the New Testament, you generally just skip, skim over that list of names, but there are five uh, women listed there. Um, and we've been looking at their stories one a week, and we'll, we'll finish up uh, next week with uh, Jesus' mother, Mary. Uh, but um, today we're looking at Uriah's wife from the, the uh, genealogy. Things were looking a little bit up in terms of the names that were listed there, right? Uh, the names, if you're looking through the genealogy there, things are looking a bit up uh, with Boaz marrying Ruth, then having Obed, and then having Jesse, and David, everybody's, you know, David's a big deal uh, kind of guy in the history of Israel. Uh, but then it says um, in in Matthew 1, verse 6, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David was the father of Solomon by somebody else's wife. Right. Um, she doesn't get listed as Bathsheba. She's somebody else's wife. And Matthew is not, um, he's calling attention to the story that we find in Second uh, Samuel 11, which we're going to read in just a second. Second um, Samuel 11 and 12 um, He's not trying to bring shame on Bathsheba by listing her as Uriah's wife there. He's actually bringing a little bit of shame on David, on David's name, uh, who, um, who was in, in, the, in the mind of first century Jews, in the mind of uh, the Jews, the religious people in Jesus' time, uh, David was the hero. Right? He was the great king of the golden age of Israel. We want to get back to the kingdom under David. I mean, he, was the, he was the big deal guy. He was the hero. Um, and Matthew, by calling attention to his part in the genealogy here and saying, yeah, he was with somebody else's wife, and that's how the next one was born, um, he's saying, make no mistake, David's not the hero of this story. Right? David's not the hero of the story of the Bible. Uh, again, this, this genealogy, this list of all these names, uh, which we've noticed before, uh, if, you're, if you're generally writing out a genealogy for yourself, especially if a king were to uh, go back and research his ancestry and list all those names there, uh, it's usually to show something like, you, you know, these are good people that I come from, right? These, this is my esteemed pedigree. Uh, this genealogy is, is like my resume. This is not like a resume posting for Jesus. It's more like a, a help-needed posting for Jesus. Um, these, these people are really in trouble. Um, and it's remarkable that these uh, names are listed in his family tree. So once again, as we look at the story now of David and Bathsheba from 2 Samuel 11, <clears throat> we're remembering that uh, we're not doing so in order to find somebody to imitate. Kids, uh, pay attention to that. We're, we're not looking at David and Bathsheba as those we want to imitate. We're looking at them in order to, to consider the kind of people that Jesus came for the kind of people that Jesus came for and what kind of savior he is that he would come for people like this. That's why we're looking at this story this morning. So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. 
Father, as we consider your word, we pray for the help of your spirit, that he would fix our eyes on Christ, that you would um, help us to see ourselves where we're supposed to see ourselves in this story, and that you would help us to see not just ourselves in need, but to see your provision of all of our needs through your mercy, through the Savior, through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the spring of the year, the the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived... And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and didn't go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Why have uh, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening... He went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he didn't go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you've finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Didn't a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. 
So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one, now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a pretty uh, interesting story there. Uh, so for a little bit of context, <clears throat> David, his, his story, right, uh, he's a shepherd boy. He's kind of a nobody kid uh, in Israel when Saul, the big, tough, good-looking king, Saul, was uh, doing his thing. And, and so he's a shepherd boy, and he's anointed by Samuel to be the, the next king of Israel. And it's kind of a surprise. It's a surprise to everybody, right? that this, this kid who's out watching the sheep, that he's going to be the, ne- the next king. There's something about him, uh, there's something maybe about his humility or something about his responsiveness to God that, um, that the prophet Samuel s- says about him, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And, and it's talking about David, right? Um, he has a, a remarkable, vibrant faith in God that sustains him through, through his whole life, through a lot of conflict, through a lot of violence, through fear, uh, rejection, and, and doubt. Um, his faith in God sustains him through all that. And God singles him out uh, for some, some pretty special promises, pretty unique promises in the history of the world. Uh, he says in just a couple chapters earlier, 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So promises about uh, an everlasting kingdom that God is going to provide to David and to his offspring. So the whole nation of Israel, then, from this time on, would center their hopes on this promise that's made to David about his offspring and about his kingdom, his throne being established forever. Um, And in fact, the Jews in Jesus' time would teach that if the whole nation would just get itself together, pull things together for one day, for one Sabbath day, if we could all just keep one Sabbath day holy, perfectly, then the Davidic dynasty would return, we'd be delivered from Roman oppression, his, his offspring would deliver us and set up this everlasting kingdom. If we act well, if we do well, God will love us, God will save us. God will favor us and prosper us and deliver us, right? If we do well enough, God will be on our side and, and he'll set up this kingdom once again. The kingdom of Israel under David, under David, was the high golden age, right? Uh, David was the great hero who, for, for the only time in Israel's nationhood, he led them to conquer surrounding nations rather than be conquered by them, right? They extended Israel's influence and control uh, far beyond uh, their original borders. Um, 
And David did so well, and he had such a great kingdom because he was a totally awesome guy, right? Because he was very good. He was a very good moral person, right? Um, David, uh, the great king, larger than life, the man after God's own heart. And in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, he's supposed to be going out to battle. David sends everybody else out and stays home and sleeps in. (laughs) Um, It's not a good picture, right? He sent the whole nation out to fight while he stayed in the comfort and the security of his own home, sleeping in until the late afternoon. The power uh, had apparently gone to his head, right? Even this great king, even the one who's humble and dependent on God, it's gone to his head, Um, even the one who's known for his humility and his faith. And Here's the best man that God's people ever produced. The best man they could hold forward. The best man they could put on a pedestal, right? And we're already off to a really bad start in this story. You know, it happened late one afternoon. David rose from his couch, right? He's getting out. I mean, it's late in the afternoon. He's lazing around, walking on the roof of his house. He saw a woman bathing. The woman is very beautiful. Finds out it's... Uriah the Hittite's wife. Go get her for me. Um, <clears throat> and she, she comes, and they know each other, and she goes home and conceives and tells him that she's pregnant. So Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, is listed a little bit later in 2 Samuel as one of David's uh, greatest warriors. Right? He's one of the top maybe 30 or so guys uh, in the country. He's a loyal subject. He's a Hittite, which is to say when Israel came and and they they took the land under Joshua, when they came out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea and they spent their time in the wilderness and they crossed the Jordan and they start taking over the land, uh, the Hittites were one of the Canaanite groups that were living there. And some of them were spared their lives uh, to be servants of Israel. And he was a servant. He was a loyal subject. Right? It says over and over again, Uriah the Hittite. It's reminding us that this guy's an outsider. This is not the kind of guy you would expect such loyalty from. But he is supremely loyal. And he's one of David's best guys, one of his best fighters. It should have been enough to wake David up out of his lustful fantasy right there. To hear that this, this woman that he was checking out, that's Uriah the Hittite's wife. That's one of his good, good men. That's his wife. Right? should have been enough, but... Um, no, he abuses his power. He sends for her. And uh, I mean, it's a moment of terrible weakness or sin, right? Lust, what lust does to you, uh, it makes you say, you know, I don't care if I'm caught. I don't care about the consequences of this. I just want this, right? David just wanted it, and he got it. And who knows why she consented to be with him. Maybe she felt pressured because, um, I mean, he's the king, Right? get called into the king's palace, you do what the king says. Usually, that's kind of how it usually works. Maybe she felt pressured by that. Maybe she felt infatuated uh, or intoxicated by his regal charm. It's said in the scriptures that he's actually a pretty good-looking guy, right? Maybe she was uh, intoxicated by his, uh, his majesty. Um, maybe she was more seductive than the text makes it explicit. Who knows? Uh, whatever the case, the Bible isn't portraying this affair as a good thing. Right, it's it's uh, it's an affair. It's an adulterous affair. And remember, the Bible gives us characters that often we can sympathize with. 
We read their stories. We know what this, this kind of thing is like. Um, it's not there to condone their behavior. You know, we might be tempted to think that the Bible approves of actions, all the actions that are recorded there, but the Bible's just being honest about how pitiful, miserable, broken, and sinful we really are. Uh, there's, there's a lot of honesty there. So David and Bathsheba <clears throat> have an illicit, adulterous affair. It's a very bad thing. It's the kind of thing that absolutely ruins lives, as you heard when we read through it, you know, as we see uh, in the upcoming story. Any, um, any girl who is married to Uriah would consider herself lucky to be married to a guy like Uriah, right? which just makes the unfaithfulness here even worse. It just makes the story all the more heartbreaking. This is a really miserable thing they've got themselves into here. Um, the, the little bit about her uh, bathing for the purification, probably, um, if you remember Old Testament law, she's purifying herself after her uh, menstrual period, which means this is not Uriah's baby. Right? Um, we know for certain she had not been pregnant before, She's pregnant with David's child. She tells him that, and things start spiraling out of control. And this is what happens when you try to be God, when you try to take what you want. And when power goes to your head, uh, you try to be God and control all the circumstances of your life, things get out of hand really quick, right? Things are spiraling out of control. This is a nightmare of David's own making, that he has made one of his generals, his wife, pregnant. This is a nightmare. I mean, maybe you've had nightmares about things like this. Um, And he's done it to himself. And he just, he can't stop asking the question, what am I going to do? What am I going to do to fix this mess I've gotten myself into? Uh, So damage control, right? Self-protection becomes a top priority. You know, if people found out what I've done, my life would be ruined. It'd be the end of the world. I'm so ashamed. Uh, for David, I mean, his people should probably rise up and overthrow him. Um, it's a big deal. It's a big mess that he's gotten himself into. And, and that's all that you can think about. If people found out what I have done, my life would be ruined. Um, and that's all you can think about. And you live to justify yourself. You live to cover up what you've done. You live to hide yourself from God and from everybody else, even from yourself. When you've messed up something like this, uh, you live to justify yourself and hide. This is a story about guilt, right? This is a story about what we do, what we try to do when, um, when we have to fix the problem of our guilt. Um. So David sent word to Joab, send Uriah here. He's got this plan concocted, which is a fairly decent plan if you're trying to be God, I guess, Uh, control everybody's life uh, and and cover up your own sin. He says, well, maybe if Uriah comes home and I can get him to sleep with his wife, everybody will think and he'll think the baby's his. But Uriah refuses, and you see over and over again he's refusing because he's a really good guy. Right? he, he doesn't like the idea that, um, that the Ark of the Covenant, that God's presence is, is out there on the battlefield, that all of God's people, all, you know, everybody is out there on the battlefield, and he's not out there. He's, he's called home, and he's supposed to enjoy creature comforts, and he doesn't, um, he doesn't go for that. He's, he's too loyal. He's too faithful to God and country. 
uh, concerned with the battle with his comrades, right, with his friends out there. He's too concerned with all these. He considers himself still on duty. Right? I'm still on duty, which is in stark contrast to David. David's um, supreme self-centeredness, then, it leads him to the ultimate betrayal of loyal, faithful, good Uriah. Um, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, which is kind of the commander of his army out there, um, sent it by the hand of Uriah. If Uriah opened that letter, he would see, basically, kill Uriah. Um, He sent that letter so that Joab would in one of their offensives, be, be too close to the walls where things are really dangerous of the city where they're uh, besieging Rabah, and then he'd have all his men pull back and just leave Uriah there to die, right? uh, fighting a whole army by himself. Um, and it happened, right? And, and Joab sent and told David about what happened. So the, the ESV study Bible, it's a great, uh, great study Bible, says that David is hopelessly overwhelmed by the need to cover up his wrongdoings, even if it means taking another person's life, and even more, the life of a faithful soldier. So he's got some pretty serious guilt throughout this whole story. It's real guilt. It's not just what he feels. Uh, It's real guilt, real objective wrong that he's doing. He's probably finding it difficult to live with himself, right? He has to have a clean conscience. He has to have a clean conscience. He has to preserve his reputation. Um, So assuaging his conscience and securing his reputation will require the death of this beautiful, faithful, sincere Uriah. And others also would die for the sake of David's cover-up, and the casualties of sin are piling up here. This is bad This is a bad story. And in the face of evil upon evil, in the distortion of David's uh, self-justification, I mean, he's he's trying to justify himself to himself and to other people. He's trying to bring other people into this cover-up. He he finds some relief in what he manages to accomplish, and he wants to reassure Joab now that everything's okay, you know. Everything's okay. Uh, The messenger comes and says, uh, you know, we've lost a lot of men in this battle Uriah the Hittite's also dead, and you can see David wiping his brow in relief. Okay, okay. This is supposed to be bad news I'm hearing. I want to encourage everybody here. I want to, I want to tell them, you know, don't worry about this. It's battle. It's war. Bad things happen. People die. Don't worry about it. Just be encouraged, okay? Uh, he does that out of his, uh, you know, sense of his, his wrong sense of uh, relief. So what otherwise should be considered a terrible, discouraging loss, he, he plays it down. He plays it down. Uh, and this is what you get when sinful, broken people try to fix on their own what they broke. Because they're sinful, broken people. Uh, broken people can't fix themselves. Broken people can't fix themselves. Broken people can't fix the whole world that's broken. Um, it's a pretty extreme example of that, but it's always true. This is always true. When, when all you have are sinful, self-centered, self-absorbed, self-protecting, self-advancing motives, when that's all you've got, and when those are the same motives that got you into the trouble that you're in in the first place, um, then you're in a mess, right? You're in a tight spot. You can't fix what's broken with what's broken, 
Um, maybe you won't utterly destroy other people's lives like David did here. People dying. Right? Um, maybe that won't happen in your life. But you can't bring, a, bring about true, loving, healing restoration of all the wrongs that have been brought about in your life. Left to ourselves, uh, we just go from bad to worse. And that's, what, that's the story of David. We go from bad to worse. Left to ourselves. So <clears throat> when the wife of Uriah heard, and this is Bathsheba, heard that um, Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. She bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, it says the thing David had done was evil in the Lord's eyes, evil in Yahweh's eyes. Um, so this is a man after God's own heart, but this, this thing couldn't stand. Right? He's a man after God's own heart, but this can't stand. And God can make a distinction like that. God can make a distinction that's very difficult for us to make. God uh, can hate sin for the evil that it is. He can really hate it and have to do something about it. Um, and God also can love sinners who do that kind of stuff. He can hate sin and he can love sinners. We easily mistake the one for the other. Right? Uh, we conflate the two, confuse the two. We, we easily think um, either that you know, God loves sinners, therefore he must be okay with the sin that we do. Everything must be okay with him because he loves people like us. It's all about love, right? Uh, or we make the mistake that, you know, God hates sin. Therefore, he must not really love people who sin. Therefore, if, if uh, we're going to get on his good side, if he's going to love us, we have to stop sinning. We have to fix ourselves. We have to be good if God's going to love us, right? Um, and we're wrong about God if we believe either one of those things. We're just plain wrong about who God is and what he's like. Um, God truly loves sinners, even though by their actions, they disqualify themselves from his love. He loves sinners and he hates sin. That's true of every single one of us. God loves us in spite of our not being lovable. Right? God loves us in spite of our not deserving his love, in spite of our deserving judgment. Because what we've done is evil. Um, David wasn't a man after God's own heart because he was good, because he was pure. God didn't bless him and make good promises to him and prosper him because he was righteous. God did all that because he's a God of grace. He's a God who has a gracious love even for people like David. Right? This is not a religion. We're talking about Christianity. This is not a religion. We don't have a savior for people who have everything together. And let me apologize to you if you've ever been led to believe that in order to belong as a Christian among God's people, in order to have a good relationship with God, that you have to have everything together. Let me apologize if you've been led to believe that, because that's, that's a lie. That's not who God is. That's not what our religion's about. That's not what our Savior's like. This is not a religion of good works that uh, those of you who clean up yourselves well enough will finally find acceptance with God. The kingdom of God is not for perfect people. It's a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of grace. David, who's the best man Israel's got in their history, he's the greatest king. 
He's a complete mess. He's a moral failure. He's judged by God. He's wicked. What he did was, it was evil. And God even loves people like him. He goes on in the next chapter to forgive him, right? He draws out this confession of sin from David through Nathan the prophet. You can go read the story, 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, later on your own. But, but God forgives him. Right? And he doesn't go back on his promises. Um, God could say, you know what, David? I've, I've finally come to the conclusion you're just not my type. Right? He could say that. And we all expect that he probably would say that to us, right? You're just not my type. But instead, God said to David, you're a man after my own heart, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to be with you forever. Um, And that says less about the kind of people that God loves, more about the kind of God it is who loves people like that. Um, there, there is a real tension between God loving sinners and God hating the things that sinners do, sin, right? Um, there's a real tension there. There's real guilt. There's, it's not just problems that we make up in our minds and feel a certain way about. We have real guilt before God. God's the one who looks at what we do and he says, nope, that can't stand, right? He, it's real guilt. It's real problems of conscience for us. We need our conscience cleaned. We need our reputation with God restored, but we can't come up to this. We can't come up with a solution for that, right? We can't fix this problem on our own. Only God in His mercy could. And at the right time, He sent His Son, who was born in the line of David, from people like this, you know, two people like this, to be the the true and good and beautiful King, the only just King, right? The only just King, Jesus Christ. Uh, He's, he's utterly unique. When you read the Bible as it portrays humans, right? If anybody gets any notable length of time uh, of the scriptures devoted to them, if their story is being told, um, the story about Jesus is utterly unique. You, you know that right away when you read the scriptures. The scriptures are brutally honest about people, and the honest truth about Jesus is that he's without sin. He is not like David. When God looks at him, he doesn't say, nope, that can't stand. When God looks at him, he says, yes, I love you. I love everything about you. Right? He lived a life that was worthy of God's love, where we have fallen utterly short of that. Right? If you know yourself at all, uh, you know you've fallen short of deserving God's love. Um, and whereas we deserve God's righteous anger, we deserve God to say no to us, Jesus Christ went in our place to the cross where he heard God say no. He deserved to hear God say yes, but he heard God say no. He gave up his life, suffering under the judgment that we deserve in our place for us so that we would be spared that judgment. I mean, the main challenge was for God to destroy sin and its effects without destroying the people who sin, without destroying sinners. Uh, And the only solution for that, the only solution is Jesus Christ. We need a clean conscience. We need a holy reputation with God. We need that as badly as David did. He tried to get it on his own, and a good, loyal, faithful servant died. Uh, We need a clean conscience. We need a restored reputation. And it would require the death of the most beautiful, the most good, the most true man who ever lived. 
This is the only solution to your real problem of real guilt before God. It's the only solution to your problem. If the best man among God's people, David, was capable of such things, I mean, you should know by now that you're capable of such things. Read through David's story, and you should be um, concerned about yourself. The potential for that same kind of thing lies within your heart, you know, and you can't fix yourself from that kind of a problem. Um, I mean, can you imagine continuing forever trying to pretend that you weren't like that? Can you imagine uh, trying to hold up the facade forever? I mean, if David got away with this, holding up that facade forever, holding up, you know, the pretend righteousness in everybody's eyes and trying to believe about himself that he was a good person, can you imagine doing that forever? It's exhausting. You should stop. Um, You should just confess, yeah, I'm just like David here. I need as much help as he needs. Uh, you, You can't do damage control to fix the problems of your own sin, but God didn't leave you alone to do that on your own, right? But he came with his gracious solution. As uh, we read in the New Testament reading from Romans 5, while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were enemies. So, in other words, while we did not deserve it at all, Christ died for us. Christ reconciled us to God. So, now imagine, then, if David and Bathsheba, hundreds of years later, were to read Matthew's gospel about the Savior, Jesus. They see the beauty of him. They see the glory that he has, his love, his sacrifice, the, just who he is. He's the God-man. And what he came to do to reconcile us to God, the one who fed multitudes, who healed the sick, he brought the dead to life, He gave himself to a shameful, bloody death for the sake of love of his enemies, to make them his friends, even his brothers and sisters. Um, And then he rose from the dead immortal and went into heaven on our behalf, the great king of kings, the king of the universe, who is praying for us. David and Bathsheba were to read the story of the gospel and then read the genealogy and see their names there. Imagine what they'd think, what they'd feel when they read their names in the list leading up to the name above all names. We're connected to him? This can't be true. This is too good to be true. We're connected to him. Our story is part of his story. They would hear, if they read that genealogy, they would hear God saying to them, I don't condemn you. I love you. You're mine came for you. I want you to be with me where I am. That's what they would hear by um, seeing their names in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Close with uh, something Paul wrote in 1 Timothy. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's you. That's us. And Jesus really is the kind of Savior who comes for people like us to bring us to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, teach us your great forgiveness. Help us to see how much we're in need of it. Help us to live as those who are forgiven, not those who are trying to be forgiven. Help us to um, 
remember your gospel, to remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us so that we would have true joy, so that we would be able to say with David, even, even David, whose sins here are so clearly exposed, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Um, teach us the, the joy of knowing our sins forgiven so that we would be a joyful people who, who joyfully pro- proclaim you and your kingdom of grace to all of those around us, our friends, our family, our loved ones, our co-workers who don't yet know you. We pray that your forgiveness would uh, drive deep down into our hearts and spread out through our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.